welcome to all of our virtual attendees. I am Suzanne Wilson-Heckenberg, President of the Intelligence and National Security Alliance and the Intelligence and National Security Foundation. Thank you for joining us for the Future of the IC Workforce videocast series, underwritten by Avantis Federal and co-produced by Clearance Jobs. This three-part program examined how we can reimagine the traditional IC work model and use lessons learned from the pandemic to build and grow a talented and diverse workforce. We kicked off the series in February with former NSA Director Harry Coker Jr. and Avantis Federal CEO Andy Maynard, who discussed the challenges and opportunities remote work affords. Episode two featured ADNI and the IC Chief Financial Officer Trey Treadwell and Ken Moy, Acting Assistant Secretary of State for INR, who addressed the workforce issues associated with remote work specifically recruiting, training, and reskilling. For our final episode of the series, we will discuss the technology angle and how the IC is leveraging remote work technologies and open source research and analysis to advance the mission. Here today are Marie Falkowski, CIA's Chief of Digital Innovation for the Weapons and Counterproliferation Mission Center, and Dr. Ellie Nywood, Vice President of Intelligence and Cross-Cutting Capabilities at MITRE. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce our program moderator, Lindy Kaiser, who is a senior editor of clearancejobs.com, the largest career site for professionals with an active secret security clearance. Over to you, Lindy. Well, thank you again so much to Suzanne, and thank you to the Intelligence National Security Foundation. Um, thank you to Avantis Federal for for sponsoring this conversation. We're so excited to be talking about the third part in our Future of the Remote Work series. And today we really get a chance to unpack the technology that's enabling this to happen. So without any further introduction, I wanna just go ahead and launch into our questions. And Marie, I'm gonna ask you the first question here, just about what are some of the most compelling opportunities you see for technology to enable virtual work in the intelligence community? It's obviously very applicable for you working for the CIA in your role, and as we see from your backdrop, embracing kind of the remote work situation, at least in some capacity. Yes, this is my highly curated, you know, shelf behind me. But yeah, um, well, it's interesting because COVID really forced us to find ways to work differently while also considering options for the future of our work. And I'm a huge, huge proponent of taking advantage of where um, talent at where it sits. So in my opinion, not everyone needs to have a clearance, right, to do great work for the IC, and particularly those who are writing code, labeling data, delivering technologies. And we were seeing those opportunities pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, but, um, you know, doing that, engaging with the private industry and the commercial sector. But in some of these uh, cases, we were able to take more advantage of that during the pandemic time. So I, I love it. I think, again, you know, take advantage of talent where it sits. I don't care if you're working from Austin or Pittsburgh or Santa Cruz, as long as you can deliver what we need the way we need it, um, I think that's great. I also think that uh, research and training are obvious areas where um, virtual work is very possible. But I did have one example that I thought was just really compelling. Um, many of you may have heard of the private investigative organization Bellingcat it's on my Twitter feed, um, but in the late 2020 uh, timeframe, Bellingcat used publicly available tools and data to accurately identify Russian intelligence um, officers who were working under alias, um, employing clandestine trade craft and a highly sensitive operation against the Russian government oppositionists, uh, Alexei Navalny. And so what we saw was Bellicat leveraging its independent international uh, collective of researchers, investigators, citizen journalists, and they used open source data to defeat the tradecraft of what we would consider um, one of the world's most capable intelligence services. And they were able to identify the individuals who poisoned Navalny based on call records, travel data, and social media behavior. So they didn't do this right behind these government firewalls, and they didn't do it with a team that was co-located in the same office or even the same building. So for me, um, it just kind of highlights there are different ways for us to be able to do the jobs we do to get at some of those key intelligence questions, um, but it also highlights some uh, significant challenges for the workforce. Mm -hmm. So absolutely. So same question to you, Dr. Eli Nywood, who have you, you know, on the line with us today. What are some of the most compelling opportunities you see for technology 
enabling virtual work across the intelligence community? Yeah, so I, you know, I'll start from you know where Marie was. I think you know, to me, you know, there's compelling technology, but there are also other compelling things that we can do that enable that you know virtual remote work. And I think the you know the sources of unclassified data that are out there and how we do analysis around those. You know, whether it's social media data, whether it's what we call digital exhaust, you know, things you can learn just by you know scraping the internet for various things, or whether it's you know commercial sensing data. You know, what can I grab from you know non-government, you know, space satellites looking down at the earth. There are all these sources of data out there that we can do unclassified analysis with that you can do at other places, you know, not necessarily, you know, in a government building, you know, in a vault. And so I think that's an incredible opportunity that we have to jump on. I think there are also, there are technologies that are, you know, coming along. How do we make, you know, when you work from home, you know, whether it's a zero trust architecture and those principles, how do you make that more secure so even though you're not in a government facility, you're in a classified facility firewalled off, you know, we can still have confidence uh, that no one's sort of watching what you do every step you take as you do that. So I think there's technologies there as well. You know, during COVID, the Air Force accelerated their, you know, secure view device one, you know, letting people get on SipperNet from home. You know, maybe that's not quite the right level that we need, you know, for the IC, but I think that kind of technology you know, how can we pursue things like that? And what can you allow people to touch, uh, you know, from their home or from a remote work location, right? Maybe they're not going into the government, but they're working somewhere else that we have some control over. So I, I think it's a mix of, you know, things that are out there that you can do, uh, you know, remotely, and then technologies that will allow us to do that even more securely, maybe than we have to date. I think those are great opportunities for the IC to leverage. Mm -hmm. And now I'd love to get some ideas for using more unclassified technology and how it can improve mission effectiveness. I thought that was a great example that you gave earlier, Maria, just talking about Bellingcat and how like this is being done. It's not a matter of like, can we do this? Um, you know, we are using unclassified technology to do things and maybe how has, how has COVID opened up perhaps opportunities or, or other examples for using unclassified technology and still accomplishing, you know, sensitive missions. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because um, I, yeah, unclassified technology is such a broad term. <laughs> um, but I do actually like what um, what was mentioned too about the Air Force uh, leveraging technology, right, to, to um, access their zipper from home. That was very intriguing. But um, I would suggest things like leveraging artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, this is, it will be game-changing. It's going to help us do everything from automating collection and our reporting processes, as well as making sense of large volumes of data. Because when in our line of business, what we talk about all of the time is, you know, finding that elusive needle in the haystack. And we need to be able to do that in seconds, right? We don't have minutes. We don't have hours. We don't have months. So the use of tools like object and image recognition um, for near, what I would call near real-time alerting neural networks and machine learning for on-demand uh, language translation and transcription, and even disseminating automated reporting, right? We see that happening in places like with the Washington Post and with Reuters, being able to leverage technology like that in areas like where we have global coverage issues um, and maybe using, you know, for lack of a better term, unmanned sensors, um, but does it really require our human time and human resources to really get at the, the judgments that are required. So um, we have about 100 projects that are ongoing at the agency uh, today, and um, that's going pretty well. So work didn't just stop when some of the workforce had to, had to go home for COVID and kind of we're, we're seeing more examples of how folks can do it. So yeah, maybe you can help school me. I count on MITRE to, to do this kind of stuff for me. Eli, so unclassified technology. So maybe what are, what are we talking about here with unclassified technology? Um, how are we using that to accomplish missions and maybe what does that include? Yeah, so I think, I think there are a host of things that sort of unclassified technology can help us with, help us get after that, you know, that mission effectiveness. And again, I, I think Marie, you know, touched on a couple, but you know, for example, uh, you know, you have one government sensor you can use to, you know, take a picture or find something. It might be exquisite, but you know, an adversary might know, you know, when it might be around, or you know, might be able to fool one thing. If I have, you know, a hundred different sensors, you know, you know, which are unclassified, which come from the commercial sector, 
you know, just people or, you know, whether it's a, you know, a constellation of planet doves, you know, flying around, it's a lot harder to fool all of them than it might be to fool that exquisite sensor, right? Harder to fool, you know, one exquisite sensor than one coarse one. But, you know, now I don't know when you're looking at me or I don't know what you're looking at me with or what modality you're using. I think opportunities for innovation and collaboration, right? The IC and the agencies have great minds in them, but, you know, but there's a lot of people who aren't there and a lot of great ideas that don't come from there. And again, I think Marie mentioned this a little bit earlier, but if we can bring some of those people in, expose, you know, some of what, you know, we can't tell them maybe about the detailed problem we're getting after, but we can give them a sense of what the challenges we face in terms of intelligence collection uh, and get them to help with that innovation, get them to help with experimentation. Let's build a technology unclassified, you know, try it out on unclassified data or, you know, build up a, you know, a sandbox that they can try things in, try it there and then move it up to the high side and use it for real. So I, I think, you know, we can do a lot more innovation in unclassified space uh, than we can in, in the classified spaces. If we can try different things, we can just be faster. We can be using the latest and greatest, you know, while we wait for that to get, you know, go through an authority to operate process or get cleared by security to be on a high side network. We can be trying it out and experimenting with it in whole different ways. So I think there's a lot of opportunities in both of those respects. Ellie, I yes. can't believe that you went into the whole ANA process. That's yeah. fabulous. You know, I wanted to mention too a couple of things, if you don't mind. Um, you know, we have OSINT teams uh, across the IC, and they're leveraging some of this commercial technology today. We have folks that can go through you know, just thousands of hours of video and texts to report on things like foreign reaction to U.S. policies. Um, they're using uh, best of breed technology for translation and transcription, working with Amazon and Google and Microsoft. So we have, um, you know, folks that are, are analysts that will use technology getting recommenders, right? So we have so much uh, information that's available. It helps them read in quickly, but also too, like virtual reality and augmented reality are also uh, key players in this. It's gonna give us a lot of new options, everything from, uh, let's say conducting virtual orientations of foreign locations. You can model the tactics for advanced weapons and technology use cases and then language training, um, as well as even enabling wellness and capabilities for officers who are working in high stress environments. So yeah, I think there's a lot that can be done leveraging technology and unclassified capabilities. Yeah, and I think, I, I think the IC is, is doing a really nice job of, of sort of, I'll say, adopting, you know, the unclassified technologies that are out there. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, that's definitely one path we need to go on. And I think, you know, other things we can do, and I, I already, you know, are doing some of this. We might are doing some of this. I see things in mm -hmm. How do you adapt that technology, you know, for the problems that the IC faces? You know, how do you feed those problems back you know, so you get those bright minds at Google, at Microsoft and Amazon, you know, not just thinking about their problem and then we take that technology and transport it over, but get them thinking about our problems a little bit. You know, it could be things like climate change, right? The government, you know, increasing, you know, priority to climate change. We can do a lot of that work unclassified, right? You know, what is that going to mean for the IC? Mm -hmm. Can we lay those problems out? And then I think just keeping an open mind about, you know, the things you can do differently, right? So again, I'll come back to planet. When you image the whole earth every day, uh, you can, you know, it's a different type of data maybe than the IC is used to. And so how do you bring those two things together, right? How do you bring the classified data and the unclassified data together? And what would that allow you to do that either one won't enable in and of itself? There's some really exciting things that I think are already going on there and more that we can do there. Yeah, I think what you just touched on was key, and I think it kind of ties into our to our next question. So this kind of stuff was happening before, as you emphasized, Maria. Like we've had OSINT, we we were we It's not like it was. We've always had everything the intelligence community does is classified at the absolute highest level. I mean, a lot of it is. A lot is. So that's <laughs> that's overclassification. That might be another conversation. But we have a lot of stuff that's classified. But there's a lot that's done, or that's done in partnership with the commercial sector. So have you seen? You know kind of the push of more requirements for people to work remotely in federal offices that are just starting to lift. Did that create maybe more of this synergy between what's going on, you know, what's going on at the high side, what's going on at the unclass side and how we get those, you know, 
I don't want to say they work together because because that will make a lot of people mad. But how do you how do you have both of those working? I'll start with you, Marie, if you can like. Well, I, well, we yeah, um, it definitely like we definitely had to think about things a lot differently. We had to really take a step back. It's funny that you mentioned overclassification. We just had to take a step back and say, okay, you know, what can we do, um, and what can we focus on? Um, I it did cause us to engage a little bit more with the industry. Um, and I see that very often across the IC, especially with our OSINT partners and being able to test and, and try different things. But um, you know, we had to do everything from going to virtual meetings, doing virtual interviews, training, orientation, um, including the technology development. I think um, the biggest thing, right, the best practice that we've gotten out of it is just around communication. So we're a very people-based um, uh, and uh, personality-based organization. And it really forced us to think about how to be more concise, um, be more specific, right, about what we needed and who we needed that from uh, and when. And, and to be frank, uh, even more kind in the, in the process, right? Because you, you only have a, a certain amount of time to, to get things done, but you have a million meetings to go to. And virtual meetings really helped us get to a lot more meetings <laughs> throughout the day. So same thing for you, Eli, can you maybe touch on that? Like, how do you, how do we have these two things, you know, happening and maybe how did COVID accelerate some of the... Yeah. So I think, you know, no question COVID accelerated quite a bit. I mean, I think, look, it was going on, but, you know, we basically shut down a lot of our support to the Intel community for, you know, a week or two, you know, when, when COVID first started and, and no one knew what to do. Some of our contracts, you know, literally prohibit, you know, working from home or even not any work, not in a government space. And so, you know, it definitely forced us to look at those a little bit more carefully. I think it forced the government to look at them a little bit more carefully. And, you know, and we've changed, you know, with the government itself, we've changed many of those. But I think, you know, look, when you have people sort of sitting at home, the, these are not the kind of people who want to just sit there and watch TV all day. They're thinking about what they can do. They're exploring what's out there. And so, you know, uh, you know, our use of, you know, virtual conferencing, our ability to connect to people, our ability to give them trusted tools. I mean, again, I come back to, we still need them working in, in you know, in cyber resilient environments. And I think we accelerated our ability to do that and to give them, you know, again, to, to build up the security around what they're doing from home or doing from other locations. So I think that's gotten a lot better. I think, you know, you just look at all the, you know, investigative reporting that got done around COVID, you know, looking at, how far everybody commutes every day, you know, articles like that in the New York Times, I think open people's, you know, eyes to the kinds of things you could do. Um, and so I think there were people who knew that already, but I think the understanding of it has really grown, uh, you know, quite a bit, uh, you know, since, since COVID started. And, and so I, I think all of those areas, I, I think we, we've learned a lot of things, right? I mean, you see papers in nature, you see all of this work that, uh, you know, that people have done that is essentially intelligence work you know, for other, you know, for other purposes and means. You know, we've been really thinking hard at MITRE about, you know, what it means to almost reinvent, uh, you know, intelligence, given what we've learned during COVID, and given, I think, a different set of priorities coming from the government. You know, I, I do think, you know, there needs to, you know, we need to do a lot more than understand the Russian or Chinese military today, right? That isn't going to help you you know, with solar winds or with pipeline shutdowns. And, and so I think there's a very different set of problems out there, which also are more amenable in some ways to, you know, open source information, to unclassified technology, you know, approaches. We, we've been writing a set of papers on what we call intelligence after next, you know, one of which about radical transparency, you know, in how you inform a combatant commander about what's going on in their environment. So I think you're seeing some of this innovation, you know, driven just by the environment that's been more extreme over the last year. People respond well to that in many ways. And so I think it's helped us quite a bit. You know, unfortunate how it played out, but I think let's reap the benefits of it. Mm -hmm. Well, I love what you mentioned there's the cyber resilient environment, and that kind of ties into what I want to talk about next. We can't talk about this without kind of talking about the risks that are involved when you do all of a sudden have like you said, that two weeks span with people who, who have, who struggle to not work all the time. And so there is that aspect of like, you, you almost need a new set of 
which it was important you touched on the training piece of it, which is something you can kind of do in some respects at home. So what maybe, what were some of the risks that were identified and maybe what steps have been taken to help mitigate some of those risks? I'll start with you, Marie, on that question then. Yeah, this, was, this is a good one. So, right, we're in the business of intelligence and that work is inherently classified and you couple that with you know, what Ellie had talked, uh, talked about with um, kind of the diffuse nature of technology, the risks in the cyber arena and having to be more transparent as well as the global, global availability of the, the data. And that means that we have to be very, very thoughtful on how we approach our work, um, how we approach our trade craft, how we approach our jobs. And again, we thought about it differently, but I'm actually, um, very open to ideas and I'm enjoying listening to Ellie talk about this. So like whatever suggestions you have, I hear some papers were recently written, we'll take those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think there's a lot of risk. One, I guess quite honestly, you know, the I had thought about it is the risk that people can't leave work at home, you know, can't leave yeah. work at the office when they go home. And so I think there's a risk to people's lifestyle as well, which very honestly, I hadn't thought about much before. I think one you know thing you know that risk is is really where does it cross the line? You know when does the questions I'm asking about you know with unclassified data the fact that I'm asking those questions make what I'm doing classified? So I think we need to do more to help people understand where that line is. You know at what point do the questions or the compilation of data you know move across the security boundary? And how do we deal with that? So I think that risk is really there, although I, I think it's one that is manageable. Um, you know, you, you know, we we touched on the cyber threat. You know, I, I think that's you know another key one. Um, you know, I do think again, you know, people are coming up with ways. Again, the whole zero trust approach of you know not just relying on a firewall, but you know, encrypting, you know, end to end and checking you know, at every point that you can. So I, I think we can get better from a cyber resilience perspective and that will help. I, I think the other risk is, look, you know, the same things that we would like to do with unclassified data, they can be doing too, right? And what is it that we're exposing? And so I do think the better we get at using unclassified sources and, and doing things from home, let's apply what we've learned in the other direction and red team ourselves, you know, to understand what we are exposing. And again, so I think there's definitely a risk there. Let's be conscious of it and do what we can to mitigate it. And then I think, look, I mean, I think what we always need to do is what's the risk reward, right? You know, if the risk is great and the reward is minimal, we should know that, right? If there is a risk, but the reward goes well beyond that, you know, then let's move forward, right? And, and accept that risk, do what we can to bring it down. I, I think, you know, we cannot, ignore you know these masses of data that are out there we need to figure out you know more automated ways to process them as marie was talking about we need to leverage you know when when google develops you know better you know machine vision algorithms on you know databases of billions of cats and dogs right uh, we need to use that and then transfer it over to look at targets we care about at some point in that process it should move into a classified environment what is that point and how do we put that in a place that allows us to get the best of it without undue risk? I think that's what we need to keep asking ourselves. Yeah, and that's, I think that's a great point. I love, you know, red team ourselves. What, what can we learn from this? You know, what are the commercial or non-government maybe success stories within COVID that we can look at best practices, technology? So I want to ask you that first, you know, Eli, touch on do you have examples? I know Miter's in the business of research. And so from your research side of the house, what, what have you discovered or what are some examples that you're hoping that, you know, maybe the IC can apply? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, you know, definitely, I think, you know, I, again, I think some of the things we've learned from research is, is how to do that sort of transfer learning, right? How to take, you know, not start from scratch, you know, we're not going to get, um, you know, databases of millions of images of some of the targets the IC cares about. But how can you start uh, you know, with databases that are out there and then transfer that you know, to do what you know, re image recognition of the things you care about? How can you use you know, simulated targets effectively and not fool yourself that you're doing better than you really are, right? Um, so you know, I, I think there's research in those areas. I think there's research in, you know, as I talked, mentioned earlier, how do you use some of these data sources in different ways, right? So how do I do, uh, 
you know, change detection, when you have, you know, the same images multiple times, multiple times a day, over and over again, you know, what can you learn about the infrastructure in a country? How can you map all that out, you know, much more quickly than, you know, human analysts can? So, you know, I think those are both examples. I, I think, you know, again, we have research going on, or, you know, I'll say internal projects we're bringing back to the government around how can you map trends in technology, you know, on the unclassified side, you know, bringing the real SMEs to bear in ways that we've struggled to on the classified side, right? Because, you know, we and the IC and all of us together can't track every technology that's out there at the depth that, you know, the academic community as a whole does. And so I think we've, we've been able to, you know, bring some of those resources to bear in ways otherwise we might not have been. So same to you, Marie. Can you kind of touch on are there are there things that even the IC has has maybe seen from what's gone on commercial side or non-government side? I know that's a really tough question for somebody in the CIA to answer, but hey, you never know. <laughs> it's a really tough question. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think you know as we're talking about this, and the more that we're um, um, thinking about this, even in the intelligence community is, you know, there's just so much data that is out there for us to go through. And um, especially when it, when we're looking at things that are out there, the technologies and the data, the information that's just publicly available, which we call open source intelligence or OSINT, I really feel like those individuals are on the front lines, right? It is the fastest growing commodity um, that drives whole economies. Um, it disrupts markets like goods, services, transportation, medical health, politics, um, shaping public opinion. Um, and there's so much of that data is out in the public domain. And there's just no way for us to bring all of that in to kind of the different security fabrics and, and really no need. Um, so thinking about how to do those things in a secure way um, without having to bring, again, everything behind the firewalls. And so when I think about that, I think about, um, you know, just how much data is out there. So if you consider um, companies like Google and Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, just those alone, those, those, um, those big boys, um, that's like, oh, I think I read an estimate somewhere, 1,200 petabytes among them. Um, this doesn't get at the data that's coming from places like Dropbox, GitHub, where you'll see a lot of, you know, uh, research papers for interesting technologies, or the, the massive holdings that are in academia, academia, or some of the other industries. So you, I think about that. And then you think about what can happen in an internet minute, which is something we learned a lot about uh, during COVID times. So if you think about the internet minute and how our lives have changed working through the pandemic and everything got moved online, your work, education, um, the economy, entertainment, like those are just a few things that we all had to experience online for the past year. And so um, according to some data by Visual Capitalist, uh, it's a a single internet minute has about 400,000 hours of video streamed on Netflix, 500 hours of video uploaded on YouTube, 42 million messages that are out there on WhatsApp. And in that same minute, 6,500 Amazon packages, I was a recipient of many of those, um, as well as like an incredible over 200 um, thousand participants in Zoom meetings just like this. So when you think about that, that internet minute and how much data is out there, well, these are all sources of intelligence or potential intelligence that we can use across the IC. So you can find things like how to establish patterns of life or um, habits um, for individuals or even groups, right? Whole, whole regions. Um, it's great for indications and warnings, um, a good indicator of hostile events or some sort of imminent activity. So, but I also want to uh, point out, just as Ellie had said, that the same data um, and the tools that we are finding have great intelligence value, so do our foreign adversaries. And it puts our own people, 
our own activities, our own trade craft, and even our own national security at risk. So these are things that we have been definitely thinking about at the agency. I need to figure out how to, you know, make my internet minute last a couple hours, and then I could catch up on my Netflix backlog. Oh right? my god! I, I, I like, never have enough time. Yeah, for me, yeah. I thought, okay, the internet minute—it's kind of like football time, right? Where fifteen minutes is really thirty minutes, right? Depending on where you are. But I just—it's just, it's just um, astounding how much how much information is going across the internet is just out there for people to go through. Yeah. One of the things we've been looking at and, and been doing is, you know, we talk about getting from data to attributes, right? Because, you know, we can't push all that data up to the high side, you know, much right. of it we don't need, right? But can we process it, you know, at the point where it's collected, you know, down into some critical attributes, we push those attributes up to the high side, and then use those to get after questions that we want. And so that allows us to separate you know, what we do on the unclassified side from what we do on the classified side, because it's, it's sort of automated processing on the unclassified side. So it's not revealing mm -hmm. what we're interested in specifically. And then we bring this, we bring the specific questions to bear on, you know, essentially that process data. And I think that's one way to sort of to bridge that boundary. I think the other thing is, and again, I think we retouched it. Look, a, a lot of the things we want to learn about are only available on the unclassified side, right? If, if someone's mounting an influence campaign against us, the influence is happening in the unclassified world. That is where we have to go to see it. Uh, and so how do, how do we do that? But then again, you know, protect the things we need to protect at the same time. That's fantastic. I can just sit back here me, and just let you guys go back and forth. So I love the, the dialogue and the exchange. And Ellie, it took me 30 minutes to realize I've been pronouncing your name wrong the whole time. Oh, I right. should have, this is what you get for allowing me to not have to refer to you as Dr. Nywood for the whole call. So I apologize <laughs> profusely for that. Oh, goodness. Did I say that it right? Yeah, Ellie, yeah, did yeah, I, yeah. am I getting it right? I, yes. I certainly yes. answered yes. the call. It took Marie oh. schooling me two times for me to be like, okay. gosh, go back into the recesses of my blonde brain and remember what he had told me, Dr. Nywood. Um, but uh, this relates to the, a little bit to the next question about technology and it's people and process as well. So you always have, because we talk about that. I mean, all the time we're talking about security risks, you can have all of the right policies and protocols in place. You can have, you know, the device one or the most secure technology, but your technology is only good as, as good as the end user who is using it, who is unable to remember how to pronounce somebody's name. So maybe, you know, we'll, we'll let we'll let Marie start with this one, but talk about, you know, as you're identifying these problems, how much of it is technology and how much it is people in process. And then also policy, we have to layer on top of that too, because we find that out that out a ton with COVID. Um, you might be able to do something virtually, but we even have that with the security clearance process. You have to have an in-person signature for some forms. So they're saying like, well, why can't we do it via Zoom? Well, you would have to make a policy change for that to happen. So there might be technology to enable it, but you also have to have policy change. So kind of talk about Another broad question for you, basically tell me whatever you want, Marie, but the intersection okay. of all those things together. No, like you said, you know, and in, in my experience, technology, it's not technology that's the, the issue, right? It's just like you say, it's, um, you know, the people, the process, the culture, right? The culture, culture, culture. Um, and, you know, our culture is rightfully focused on security. So, the questions about how we continue to evolve those processes, um, both on the physical and the online security, how we might have to retool our policies, um, and you know how we can bring technologies in in a way that is um, secure, but also do that in a rapid fashion. Like those are all things that we have been um, talking about and thinking through. Um, it's really about how much. Uh, risk, right? An acceptable level of risk that we're willing to assume. Um, we're a very uh, risk-oriented organization, but we do really want to make sure that we're protecting, protecting our people and um, our tradecraft. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, they clearly need to go hand in hand, right? I mean, again, we didn't know it was a problem having contracts that said you had to work in the government space until, you know, this happened, right? And so I, I think that's, you know, we've, we've fixed much of that problem, right? I think, you know, as we look at, you know, open source data and, and, you know, we look at using some of these technologies, we'll see where the process keeps us from doing what we want to do. 
And then I, I think, you know, what we just need to be, have a culture that's agile enough to address that, right? And so I, I think, you know, we need the people to shift and the mindset to shift. We need the prices to shift. We need to grow the technology. Each will push the other. I think as, you know, as Marie mentioned, the culture piece, I think what we really need to get to is, you know, we can't ever treat lightly the risks we are asked the people to take. I mean, that, you know, these are incredibly serious risks for the country, for the people. Uh, I think we need to think again, though, about that risk reward piece is, you know, some, sometimes we're so cautious. I think we put people at jeopardy or we put the country in jeopardy, right? And so in some ways we need to move fast. I think that's the big cultural shift I'd like to see is never to, you know, take the risk less seriously. We cannot do that. But be conscious of the risk we take by giving up opportunities. I, I think that, you know, I think we need a little bit of a shift there from, from what I've seen in the past. And I think that would help everyone. Well, it's like you can't, you never get to zero risk. I mean, I right. think we all like, you know, within the intelligence community, especially, we always want to have that zero risk environment, but it just does not exist. I mean, you can't create, I don't know, maybe the CIA has it or, or might, or you might, you might have a white paper that tells me how to do it, but you, you still have people like me that are there to, to create. I think we some. have everything, right? We have a, it's a range, right? We have folks that are just like, open the floodgates, right? Blend in. And then we have a whole nother group of people like, where are the carrier pigeons? What's Pony Express again, right? So it's just a, and everything in between. Right. So it's That's a very robust conversation. Yeah, I think that red blue approach really helps, right? Because, you know, if we are trying to keep an adversary from doing some of these things to us and we are applying, you know, techniques together and we're seeing how we can, you know, detect things that they might be doing in open source or learn from that, I, I think it really helps us. You know, if we put our best minds on the protect side to work there, I think that helps us a lot understand what does and does. It, it's not completely symmetric. There are things they can do we wouldn't do. But I, I think it really helps us understand what the risks and the benefits are. It helps us find the holes. You know, when we bring those two sides of the IC together, right? I mean, you know, the IC includes the Department of Justice and others, right? You know, what are they doing? What have they learned? What can't they do? What does that mean for what we try to do on the, you know, on the CIA side or on the getting after the adversary side? So the whole arc of this conversation with the Intelligence and National Security Foundation is about the future of remote work. And that also applies to the future workforce. So the people that we need within the intelligence community who aren't even there yet. So maybe how does some of this technology, um, the virtual technology environment, make it easier to hire and re retain and get people into the IC? I'll start with you on that, Marie. Oh, well, let's see. So I think it's, um, I mean, it's definitely going to play a big factor. It was playing a factor during the pandemic. And there are a lot of practices that we have uh, kind of put in place that I think will remain and we'll probably build on those. So during COVID, right, we were conducting virtual interviews. Um, we can leverage some of that technology too to facilitate more collaboration and data sharing internally so we can talk about the potential hires for and ensure that the engagements that we're having with these individuals um, is just more robust and more interesting at the front end of the hiring process. Um, I can just remember when I, I applied <clears throat> many, many years ago, right? Um, when uh, most communication kind of went dark, right? You put in your, your um, application and then you just didn't hear anything for a long time. Uh, and it could take a long time to get that conditional off offer of employment. Um, virtual technology will be able to support and enhance that communication with the potential hires that we already have in the pipeline. So it doesn't have to be dark the entire time and we can give a little more information and feedback during the process. Uh, I would say, uh, I also think that gamifying, right? Some of the processes, uh, making the hiring uh, process and as well as the retention of these um, individuals that are coming in can make things a little bit more interesting. It can give managers and uh, other participants an opportunity to see how a person engages in different environments, also like how they make, uh, uh, go through problems, make decisions, right? Their, their reasoning. Uh, and then with the technical talent, Again, like, again, I just don't think that it's 100% necessary to bring everybody in right behind the firewall all the time. So 
wherever we can leverage those virtual capabilities. Uh, I think that we will continue to build on that, what we've done over uh, the pandemic, but there's just a lot of opportunity that we can take advantage of at this point. We talk sometimes about, you know, looking for purple unicorns, right? I want yeah. to find an artificial intelligence expert uh, who is a U.S. citizen uh, who lives in the national yeah. capital region who already has a clearance from Marie's organization to do my work. Good luck. And, you know, <laughs> they exist, but they're really hard to find. And a lot they're of on people, clearancejobs.com. No, <laughs> a lot of other people are looking for them too, right? So we need to grow that workforce, right? And I think yeah. we grow that workforce by having, you know, challenging problems that they can start with on the unclassified side, where they can build the technology on the unclassified. We can tell them what they're working on. And then over time, we get them cleared and, you know, we get them exposed to sponsors and we have them understand the IC more. But, you know, we need to, we need to grow that workforce. We need to tap into a more diverse set of people as we do that, right? Because, you know, again, we're trying to understand what our adversaries are going to do. They don't all look like us. They don't all think like us, right? And so I, I think we, we need that diversity. How are we going to build that? Again, I, I think it's through having work that people can do in different ways to being able to expose these problems and, and get them excited about the technology. The really good people don't want to work on 20-year-old technology, right? They want to be in, you know, starting with the best technology today and then inventing what comes next. And to some extent, they want to tell people what they've done, right, you know, with that. And so, again, I, I think the more we can do that, maybe they can't tell them about how it got used, but they can tell them about a piece of it that they invented. So I, I think it will be greatly beneficial from a workforce perspective, the more we can do there. And look, maybe not everyone needs to be in the Boston area or in the national capital region to do this or, you know, have a two hour commute, you know, back and forth, you know, because that's the only place they could afford to live. So, you know, even if they do that two-hour commute twice a week, you know, they work in the in the vault twice a week. And the other days they're doing development at home based on what they learned, you know, while they were there, you know, in a classified facility. I think there's huge opportunity here that we really need to jump on. And we are. I mean, we're, we're trying. The government's trying to do that, I believe. I think that's great. And those are my main questions. I did want to touch on a little bit because I kind of forgot to ask you about your background and what you got, what got you excited and involved in this. I think it's actually a decent way for us to wrap up as well. So kind of talk Hmm. about, you know, when you're thinking like this workforce development, what got you involved kind of passionate about working within the intelligence community and within the technology space, what's keeping you excited through a career and, you know, what are you excited most about to, to continue the IC technology journey. Start with you, Marie. Well, oh, so it's been a journey. It's been a 30 year journey. So uh, welcome all who are interested. But I, uh, I come from a long line of people who have served the country through military and other services as far back as the American Revolution. So we've had everybody from enlisted to officers, scouts and spies, you know, those who have um, enabled supply lines as well as worked in in state and federal service. So I'm also an Air Force brat. So no surprise, like when I turned 19, that I would join the Air Force and become an intelligence specialist. So they told me it was going to be something like a news reporter um, with classified information. I didn't know what classified information was, but it just seemed like it could be a lot of fun. And it has been. Um, I would say uh, the technology piece of this has been much more evolutionary. So I am a person who failed typing class in school. We are still typing on typewriters. Um, And then we started getting introduced with the computers and I didn't do so well. I quit that class too, because they made it feel like a typing class. So, you know, trying to um, kind of bend the way we view technology now um, and how actually we were even using it at that point, because I'm a, an Atari generation kid, right? So I grew up playing video games at the same time, um, mostly at the arcade. uh, And then we would use that as opportunities to make friends and solve problems. And just, it really gave me a different view of the world. So if I couple that with my Air Force experience, um, that really changed my, my, at least my concept of what a computer was. So uh, when I first came into the military, if we were going to go pick up intelligence message traffic, right, I had to get a locked computer, grab a floppy disk, lock it up, uh, walk from the office to the comm center, 
you know, have the guys wait around, um, have the guys download the messages on the floppy disk, lock that back up, walk back to the office, upload that into this giant, you know, thing, um, and then kind of go through the messages using some sort of uh, DOS commands to read those. So the first time that I saw something different was in the early 90s, it was Microsoft. And, you know, you got to see something that was user friendly, it was elegant, it was just a whole different way to do things. And we could go through 1000s of messages in a day, I think my, the most I could do was about 2000 in a day, but I didn't have to walk places and do things. So that, that was interesting. I started to see things a little bit differently. Um, so like the Air Force helped me think about technology differently. They also just, um, as an organization kind of put new technology in front of you all of the time. So I just became very comfortable at adopting and incorporating technology into kind of my daily workflow. And um, when I eventually arrived uh, at the agency, there, if there is a, a singular incident, right, that this, where I decided that I wasn't just going to be an intelligence professional, but I was going to become more of a technophile um, and get involved in technology management. I would say it was a, a late Friday afternoon, as most things happen. Um, I got a phone call from the White House and um, asking us for a, to, to get involved, right, in, in operation. This was, uh, say, sometime, a couple of years after the, the uh, events of the Arab Spring. Um, we were seeing uh, ISIS kind of taking over in the area, in the Syrian area. Syria was also going through its own civil war. And what we were being asked to do was to find some American hostages that were in the region. And so we worked really hard. Um, we were not successful. Um, and that really, really just, you know, just broke my heart. Um, we're in a place, right, where we are saying that we can, you know, you know, leverage technology and go through all of this data and we can find things, find that needle in the haystack. And um, we did, we worked really hard. But what I found is that we were also employing a lot of brute force, manual ta tactics, and spending a lot of time having to kind of move across the different uh, uh, security fabrics and um, different databases and different um, uh, capabilities. So I just decided then, right, that I was gonna get really involved in technology and that I was gonna do everything that I could to try to make sure that I bring the best capabilities to the officers and, um, that's kind of kind of set my career path where I've just been more involved in technology management overall. Wow, I'm I'm glad I got to that question. Oh. I was just like, this is what this is what the intelligence community is about. Like it's technology, yeah. but there's there's always a human element behind it. Oh, so we are we like, are real people at the CIA. I promise yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> an incredibly you know powerful and and yeah the the thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Try to follow that, Yeah, so I don't think I could follow one. that. And it, it's interesting. I think my uh, evolution has been almost the opposite of, of Marie's, right? Because I started from a technology perspective, right? I mean, I was in love with technology and airplanes and space and rockets. Uh, you know, in graduate school, I studied uh, magnetoplasma dynamic thrusters for spacecraft, right? Which my guess is you've never heard of. And at some point I graduate school, I realized that while I was probably one of the five world's experts in magnetoplasma dynamic thrusters, there were only about five people in the world who cared, right? And it didn't really matter. And, you know, realized I wanted to do something that would have real impact, you know, and would matter. And, uh, you know, my family does not go as far back as Marie's, you know, in this country, but I think in part because of that, incredibly appreciative of the opportunities, you know, that this country has given us and, and you know, and what the freedoms you know, that we are all working for and this way of life really mean. And so, you know, to me, you know, this is a, you know, a high calling, right? To be able to have impact, you know, on what we're trying to do is, you know, what motivates me, you know, to get after this, you know, dedication to that mission, right? I mean, MITRE, we, we have a motto, you know, solving problems for a safer world, right? And I love both parts of that, right? Uh, you know, it matters that we're working for the good of our country and, and through the country for the good of the world. And I love that I get to solve problems to do that, right? Because that is what keeps me intellectually interested. 
and being able to bring both of those together, right? You know, do the kind of work I love to do to have the impact I kind of, you know, I want to have for important things. I mean, that's incredibly motivating, uh, you know, and I'm learning new things all the time. I'm learning in this call, you know, and uh, I love that, so. Ellie, I need you to say that again. You are a, you're a what? Mag Magneto. Magneto. Plasma. Plasma. Dynamic. dynamic. It's like Thruster. ectomorphic. <laughs> We're all like typing as wow. trying to figure out like, okay, we want to know more. Read his bio. I don't read bios on these webinars, but these people are incredibly interesting. Intelligence, INSA never has anybody who's not an expert and hugely successful and intelligent on these talks. And so thank you guys so much for your time. I just, I mean, I love the way that ended because like, this is why we all do this because it's just, it's about people and it is, it's solving problems. And it's, I mean, Captain America couldn't do this stuff. It's, it's, you know, it's amazing the work that you're doing, the way you're levering technology with the way you're keeping people at the center of it. I think that's, um, those are great takeaways. And this is the last, I'm kind of sad. Nicholas Damianos, who, who needs a shout out because he came up with all of these questions. I'm Barbara Walters. I just ask, I just butcher the questions and mispronounce people's names. Nicholas came up with these questions. This is our third part of this series. And it's really talking about the future of the workforce in the intelligence community. So we wrapped it up with technology, but it's been a great series. So we hope the folks who are joining us will continue. Um, we'll listen in on the rest of those. We'll be a part of the conversation. This is really an area where all of these organizations, the CIA, MITRE, you know, Avantis Federal, who's underwriting this, and also INSIF, the Intelligence and National Security Foundation, has just a real vested interest in doing this, launched a scholarship that is a part of this conversation, targeted money going to attracting diversity candidates into the intelligence community workforce, because we know we need the brightest and the best. And there is interest there, because people, people hear you guys, and they're like, Got clearance jobs. I'm done. Who, who wants to hire me? I'm ready to work with CIA. But this is like exciting, exciting stuff and amazing work that you're doing. So I'm just really grateful to INSAF, to you all for being a part of this conversation um, and to the folks again at the Intelligence National Security Alliance, like Nicholas, who helped put this program together. So I really appreciate your time. And thank you again for joining us. <laughs>